Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. What do you think about getting older? Is it an exciting new chapter or something you're dreading? And when you think about seniors or elders, do you see reverence or irrelevance? Eventually, we all get older, but one of the last acceptable forms of discrimination is ageism. That's according to the American Psychological Association. Today, we talk about age discrimination and challenging the assumptions we have about getting older. Later in the show, we'll hear from Nora Duncan. She's a direct state director of the AARP Connecticut and Robin Clare, who's the executive director for the Seniors Job Bank in West Hartford. But first, joining us now is Jeff Hamoey. He's the co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy and says that midlife is not about midlife crisis, it's about finding your second adulthood. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us this morning. Good morning, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fascinating to be having this conversation at all. It is. And before you help us find our second adulthood, I sort of want to help paint a picture first is I think usually when people are in their 60s and 70s, they start to you know withdraw from the workplace. But we're now seeing older Americans as a rapidly growing workforce population. But at the same time, we would think that this would be declining because of retirement. So, Jeff, I want to ask you, why do you think that number is growing? I think there's a multiplicity of answers. And I know that some of the panel we have have got great data on this. So I'll I'll kind of keep to the narrative side of what I'm seeing. Um, Initially, I think, Catherine, it's people are just living longer. Um, In 1905, we, we would have a life expectancy of around 55 years old. Fast forward to today, if you've made it to 50, so if you've made it to 50 years old in the US, you are likely to live longer than anywhere else in the world, um, which could see you well into your 80s. So I think that extra life, that extra life that we've been given over the last 100 years, people haven't caught up with it. It's not just lifespan, it's also health span. People are living longer, living healthier. And I think, honestly, retirement at 60, 65 no longer makes sense for a lot of people um, in terms of having an active life, having some kind of a purpose, having something to engage in and meaningful to do. And then candidly, the economics um, people are living longer and they need more money and they they aren't able to retire financially in perhaps the way that they were used to. Um, and I'm not sure what the, the situation is exactly geographically where you are, but across the US, that is a, a challenge. And you mentioned extra life. And the first mm. word that I think of is a bonus. <laughs> it's like we have this bonus life, which is uh, you know, eventually, if we're, we're lucky, we all experience that bonus life. Why do you think age bias is such a prominent thing? And where do you think it comes from? 
it yeah. i i think it has be, i mean i'm pretty sure we're all aware of where it comes from it comes from media it comes from the messaging of almost every industry that is trying to sell us something right in terms of making us look younger look sexier look whatever um there are these external pressures that we feel what is also fascinating and i think what is less observed and less studied is how much of it comes from us how much we ourselves are responsible for our own narratives you get this kind of tsunami of stories being told um about what it is to be older what it is to get older i'm in my 50s um and as i wake up in the morning sometimes i'm like oh gosh i don't know if i want to do this i'm too old to do this or i'm too old to do that or my body hurts and um i played i played a game of pick up soccer this weekend with my kids and everything hurts catherine and <laughs> and the thought and it is an inevitable thought is like gosh maybe i'm too old to do that whereas actually the truth is i'm just too unfit to do it right so i'd kind of just need to work out more and look after myself better so i think there's external narratives cultural narratives and social narratives i think that as a society we haven't caught up to this increased lifespan and i think that we have to as a consequence less wrestle with our own personal narratives as well um can i just give you there's one data point i'd like to drop like a little piece of um crystal into this conversation well, and course. see where it spreads to go for it you talked about the second life and the data point that just blew my mind um was as people retire in the US um do you have a guess of what it is that people most do when they retire in America i'm afraid of this guess but i'm going to assume with the advent of netflix and and other streaming services maybe watching tv maybe or watching tv it's an astonishing piece of data on average american retirees watch 47 to 49 hours of television a week so we literally replace our jobs with televisions and you know that might be to keep us company in the in a quiet and lonely day or it might be to keep our brains busy but yeah this is an astonishing statistic so you you mentioned the second life the second adulthood that we've been given um in the majority of the time we're using it to watch tv which is just a it's just a heartbreaking thing so i think a lot of what i'm interested in and a lot of the work that we're doing is how do we reframe that how do we reframe both our own internal narratives around aging and how do we reframe how we approach what we have um in our second adulthood in terms of what we can learn how we can grow what we can think about etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah well, don't watch tv for 47 <laughs> hours well <laughs> and i'm i'm nodding at myself because as a person who may or may not have just watched a lot of tv over the weekend to treat myself and now that you say i have to work out more too so there are a lot of things i have to do after this show immediately thank you so much for that jeff uh but you you know mentioning talking about the second life and and how we do use ageism as a narrative for ourselves i will never forget a quick story that i did or um when i was a uh, when i was in my early 20s was was somebody who retired he was 65 plus it was an artist tour i was doing and he told me that he couldn't do art when he was you know working his day job and now that he's retired 
that's his full time. And he's got this art studio. He's successful. And I mean, here I am, a young reporter doing a story about him. Mm. And that really struck a chord for me. You know, I was 22, 23 years old. You hear that from somebody who's at the time, you know, much older than than I was. It, and to this day, I still remember. So following along your thoughts about, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that we make about what we can do and what we cannot do when we're older. As you just mentioned, too, you know, as people get older and retire, what else do we know about how they're spending their time besides watching TV? I'm not sure I have good data on that. I definitely would ask around the group. I think, you know, where where there is data, Catherine, that I am aware of, it's kind of depressing. It can be fairly bleak um, in terms of particularly around men on retirement, around loneliness. Um, so they're spending a lot of time alone. Um, there is a, an increasing loneliness epidemic in the US, and in, and it particularly hits men over 60. Um, in fact, our highest suicidality rate in the country is in that demographic, um, which is, again, boggling, right? Um, it, the research shows that if you are lonely, if you are isolated as you age, it can knock as much as 15 years off of your life. So it can, again, this can really impact your lifespan. Um, one of the Yale studies by a lady called Becca Levy showed how even just having a positive mental attitude about aging, embracing aging, embracing the second half of your life, the second adulthood in your life, can increase your lifespan by up to seven and a half years, which is more than quitting smoking. So right there, um, you know, if we're aware that loneliness can really impact us, then how do we think about socializing more? How do we think about um, almost friendship as a practice? How do you think about connecting to people, creating new community? And it comes back to your very first question, Catherine, around the workplace, people are going back to work, they're finding purpose, they're finding community through new things to do, um, new people to engage with, different things to learn. Um, and what that tends to do is switch both their personal energy and their ability to engage and build community and build something new to be doing. But it takes a lot of work. It takes work on, as as we were talking about, working on your own mindsets, working on your own limiting, self-limiting beliefs. Well, and I hope this conversation will help our listeners start changing that narrative and ourselves. And you mentioned the workplace. I want to dig in a little bit more. What do you hear from the people in your programs about what they're facing in the workplace when it comes to ageism? Hmm. Um, I, I hear two things. and Well, I hear more than two things, but I hear an awful lot of two things um and they're both in opposition and they can both be true um the first thing often is this sort of sense of invisibility um this question is often pretty gendered uh just for the record i think for women in their 50s 60s and 70s it is far more challenging in terms of being seen um uh, so there's this sense of invisibility sometimes in the workplace, particularly um, for women professionals. So that's one kind of bucket. For men, as they get older, um, 
especially put on retirement, it is just a profound sense of relevance. You you set up the segment with sort of reverence versus relevance or irrelevance. Um, finding relevance, especially as you get older, in the workplace, post-retirement, trying to consult, trying to find work. So there's this whole sort of tension on one side of the dynamic of people who are, they're looking to be recognized in some way for the wisdom that they've accrued, the experience that they've accrued, and so on and so forth. On the flip side, and again, a lot of the the, the data that that we look at and that we that we've been exposed to actually shows how critical and vital older people are on teams. Um, Google did a fascinating piece of research on high performance teams and what it is that makes a high performance team. And what they found was it wasn't the the individual brilliance of the team members. It was psychological safety. And what they meant by psychological safety, because it's one of those kind of hip words at the moment or hip phrases at the moment, what they were looking for in terms of psychological safety was that people on teams felt seen, felt heard, felt able to communicate and safe to communicate what it was that they were thinking about, what it was that they cared about. And that actually you get a higher performance from a team that is able to openly share like that in that kind of an environment, whatever their race, whatever their gender, whatever is going on with them. So that was a fascinating finding. And underneath that finding, what they found was psychological safety is most often provided by having age balance on a team. Older people provide that kind of a safety to a team. And so there's all this data that's showing how having an age-distributed team, you know, an age-balanced team, having elders and youngers working together can actually build psychological safety. So those two things can be true at once, right? People individually feel this difficulty in being seen and acknowledged. And at the same time, there is a pool of knowledge. and And I see a lot of people confirm this from their own experience. We know it intuitively that having people who are older and younger on a team helps them perform better. And we definitely want to talk more about age diversity in the workplace in a little bit. But I also want to talk about, I mean, we're, we've been talking about being reverent, having reverence and remain relevant. There are also certain cultures that seniors are looked up to. Um, why do these, what do these cultures look like? And does that exist here? That's a that's a great question, Catherine, and I have to be super careful to answer it as a middle-aged white guy um, in terms of my perspectives on these types of things. I'm I'm calling you from New Mexico. Um, New Mexico is a, an incredible, diverse melting pot of cultures that were, you know, original cultures and cultures that have come in. And in terms of that reverence that you see, um, or that you're talking about, it very definitely exists in the US. It just exists in different cultures. For example, um, in the native peoples here in Santa Fe, uh, we have the Diné tribe, um, the Navajo tribe, um, that literally are all around Santa Fe. Um, And that reverence is clear and obvious. And it's, it's premised on just a very different social structure. It's premised on a very different way of 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 thinking about aging and the role that wisdom has in keeping people safe, 
knowledge, wisdom, balancing tribe, tribal discussions, and so on and so forth. As I say, I'm not the best commentator on this, given who I am and where I'm from. But that is my observed. That's what I've observed um, as I as I as I've lived here, um, and similarly all around the world in sort of different cultures. Whether it's the the Japanese or or whatever, you see these these sort of different relationships to aging, to wisdom, and so on. I think it's again. I think as a, as a country in the states, we have been hit hard by this kind of obsession with youth and obsession with with beauty, right? Right, and we of course appreciate your observations. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing. That experience, and, and of course, we can't have this conversation without talking about the Modern Elder Academy. Can you mm. tell our listeners, you know, what is it, and where did you get the idea for this organization? So, the Modern Elder Academy is based in Baja California,、um, which is in Mexico.、Um, I was recently on a podcast where I found out that my interviewer for the whole interview didn't know that. Baja was in Mexico, so let's set that straight. Let's set、It's, that straight right now. <laughs> yeah, if you were to go on the one in California and just keep on driving through the border all the way to the tip of the little finger at the end there, that's Baja California Sur, and that's where the Modern Elder Academy is. We've also just opened up a, can, a campus here in New Mexico that will start operating in March on a horse ranch. And so, imagine that you've had that insight that, gosh, we're living longer, and we really need to reframe the way we think about aging, reimagine the way we think about aging. We bring groups of people.、Um, it's it's a sort of a retreat center, around thirty people at a time、um, to to Santa Fe and to Old Mexico. So, New Mexico and Old Mexico is where we're doing this. And and we work through some of these questions, right? What are the things that are holding you personally back? What are the narratives that are that are that are holding you societally? What are the narratives that your family have about you that are stopping you from growing and thriving at this age and and stage of your life? And then we go through the arc, which is how do you transition effectively through change? This idea of a a nonlinear life. Of a life where we're constantly beset by changes, you know. I think we grew up with a storybook life, Catherine. This idea that you know, you you you're young, you do your thing, you get married, you have babies, the end.、Um, and as we live longer, things get more complicated. We there are more changes in our lives. Our careers change, our purposes change, and so on. So we tend to focus a lot on transitions, purposes. Your purpose in life, your purpose portfolio, and then finally,、um, we we think a lot about what is the wisdom that you have accrued and gained in your life. What what is your gift, if you like, and how do you kind of follow that thread? How do you kind of use that as you move into this next stage? What is it that you want to do? What is it that you value and you care about? Um, a closing thought on this, and this is really not necessarily to do with MEA,、um, so much as 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 kids we transition in cohorts. We go through our life transitions in cohorts.、Um, young people、um, leave high school together. They leave university together if they happen to go there. 
As we age, a lot of these transitions happen to us alone. You know, if you're a caregiver looking after your parents and they pass, that is a, a massive transition in terms of your daily life purpose. If you're if you're let go from your job, similarly so. If you're an empty nester, similarly so. These are huge, huge transitions that people have to navigate based on these massive life changes. And so very often we do them alone, right? Our friends don't all become empty nesters at a time, or we don't all retire on the same day. And so coming to a place like the academy or building your own community of people that are going through this type of stuff together is profoundly valuable in terms of I can't teach you about these things, but if you're with other people that are going through them, you can share lessons, you can share wisdom, you can share experiences and how to get through it. And you can share community, camaraderie. I think building new communities, finding new people to be with as we age is this sort of, it is the critical, critical point is, um, I do some work with the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley when I ask them what the research points to, what is the one thing that the research points to that we need to be looking at as we age? And it, and the answer was instant. They said, building pro-social behaviors, building our ability to kind of relate, stay in relationship, create new relationships with the people around us. I find building community feels to be very much interconnected with a lot of the conversations that we have. And, and you mentioning that finding resonations with each other is helpful. Um, and you've talked about transitions and, and purpose and how you pay attention to what you need. These are all points that we need to think about. So are there other things that you want elders to know about getting older? And do you think we're more thoughtful about aging as a society? There's so much I want people to know about getting older. Well, you got about three um, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, my my part. I have two partners that I set this up with. Um, the founding partners were myself, a lady called Christine Sperber, and a gentleman called Chip Conley. Um, and I think, you know, Chip was really the kind of the one of the thought leaders in this whole field around identifying the need of society to say, gosh, we need to really radically reimagine how we think about aging. Um, so he's written a couple of books um, that are super worth looking up. Um, so that's Chip Conley, um, books on aging that, that, have, that have been out. One is The Making of the Modern Elder, and another one is Soon to be Released. Um, I myself am writing a book on men's feelings. Um, a lot of this work, a lot of this sort of transitional work, a lot of this thinking about aging, women um, in our experience, and again, sort of a limited sample, um, tend to be far more comfortable talking and thinking about this. And what is fascinating when you look at that data, when I, I talk to you about the suicidality, I talk to you about the, the challenges are, that men face as they get older, particularly older white men. But if you talk to men about, do you need help? Are you okay? Is this something that you can cope with? The answer is almost universally, I'm fine. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. So for men, um, I would say really, really start to think about how this journey is feeling 
and how you pay attention to your feelings? And then how do you feel better? Um, as a society and as men in particular, that is not a comfortable, that is not a comfortable discussion to be to be having, but it it could save your life. <laughs> Absolutely. And before we take a break, I want to take a call from Linda, who is in West Haven. Linda, you're on the air. Thank you. Wonderful program. I'll go quickly. After retiring from being a college professor a year or so ago, I became an extra at 69 years old on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's a true story. (laughs) And um, my mom worked in the Farmington schools until she was 79. And I keep a notebook on anti-aging techniques, which I share with my friends. I've already called them about this program. And uh, I also, two more quick things. I follow 102-year-old Iris Apfel on Twitter. She, at at, uh, 100 years old, got a million-dollar contract for eyeglasses. And another person who has wonderful advice, 84-year-old Sandra Hart on YouTube. Thank you so much. I'll go now. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for sharing that. And we're going to have to look out for you on that show. And thanks for new goals that I must achieve in my life is to get a million dollar contract for eyeglasses when I'm 102. So you guys are setting me up with so with so many things today. <laughs> hmm. uh, and Je- yes. oh, Jeff, uh, I just want to mention to our listeners that we're going to go to a quick break. But Jeff Hamoey, who is the co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy, will be staying with us. And we want hmm. to continue to hear from you, too. What do you think about aging? And have you experienced ageism? in your life, let us know, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And coming up next, we'll also be talking about why we're seeing a growth in age discrimination. This is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about our attitudes about getting older. And with popularized phrases like, okay, boomer, it's no surprise that seniors are feeling the effects of ageism, especially within the workplace. And joining us now to talk about this is Nora Duncan. She's the state director of the AARP Connecticut and Cowther Batter, who's an associate professor at Southern Connecticut State University. Thank you to the both of you for joining us on Where We Live this morning. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. 
And still with us is Jeff Hamowy, who is the co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy. So, Nora, I want to start with you. Can you give us an idea of what does the senior population look like right here in Connecticut? Sure. Um, you know, I thought one of the interesting things to remember is that age discrimination in the workplace uh, protections begin legally at age 40. So <laughs> when we talk about this, it's a, a big cohort. Um, but when we really think about older workers, age 55 up, et cetera, um, I mean, Connecticut's unemployment rate is about 3.7%, but we're one of the oldest states in the nation. We're, we're number six uh, in terms of how old we are with our median age being about 41 years old. And, uh, you know, so that means the median population is protected from age discrimination legally. But, you know, I think one of the things we have to keep thinking about when we talk about our population overall is that in the next 10 years, there's going to be more people in this country over age 65 than under age 18. And, you know, right now, the people in that category are the most likely to be long-term unemployed. So, you know, there's the perceptions that Jeff so eloquently uh, talked about, but I think that um, we have to think about these things in real economic terms for both the whole population, for our economy, for older workers being vital to our economy, and to the individual who is is needing to, uh, to make a living and wanting to stay in the workforce. And we've been talking about the workplace a lot, but can you also uh, give us an idea of in the hiring process, you know, where does this show up? Because we do see a lot of job descriptions describe wanting employees who can work in a fast paced uh, work environment and things like that. And that's just one of the descriptions. So where do we see that in the hiring process? Yeah, I think um, Cawther can talk about this too, but, you know, the digital native, for instance, is a, by its term a discriminatory practice. There's AI that is eliminating people um, simply based on on algorithms and on words that folks don't even realize are <laughs> part of their part of the reality of what happens when we use big computer programs to, um, you know, siphon through job applications. I will note that in Connecticut, we were able to pass a law a few years ago. Uh, prohibiting employers from asking any uh, age-related or education date-related questions on initial job applications, but yet nationwide and in Connecticut still, um, you know, more than half of workers that are over age 40 report seeing those kinds of questions show up in the job um, application process. And we know that there are other forms of prejudice in the workplace that I I think are normally addressed fairly quickly. Do you think ageism is addressed with the same vigor or otherwise? No, it is absolutely not addressed with the same vigor. Um, And that is from a, you know, from an everyday experience level for the employee, as well as, uh, you know, as, as high as the Supreme Court decisions that have been made that that ensure that age is not uh, addressed with the same vigor. So I will tell you that in AARP uh, research, there is nothing that is reported more in terms of discrimination across all races and gender uh, than age. Age is by far the number one form of reported perceived and actual discrimination. And Cawther, I want to bring you in. We talked about the hiring process. There's also downsizing and layoffs. Are older workers more likely to experience this? 
Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think so. And and I think it's because generally speaking in the workplace, I, I think that that population of of employees is perceived as the easiest and the the fastest to let go. Um, and it kind of comes back to some of what Jeff said. It's the narrative about the value that those folks are are bringing into the workplace and, and the value that their diversity is adding um, to the work environments as well. And are there things that companies can do to better accommodate older workers, more independence, say? Yeah, I think I think um, changing that narrative, as as Jeff said, I will echo that because I think that that's huge. I, I truly think um, culturally we need to change how we perceive um, an older workforce and the value, again, that they're bringing to the workplace. Uh, but I think also um, looking at pre-employment screening measures, uh, Nora was kind of alluding to this, there are a lot of pre-employment um exams, tests, assessments, and and even those algorithms parsing through bulk uh, resume submissions that are eliminating um, older workers from even getting an opportunity to meet with employers. So I think evaluating um, those pre-employment measures is also an additional step that can be taken. Um, And then being very conscious and deliberate about making sure that you're diversifying your workplace and, and ensuring that you know, you're honoring and and respecting the complaints that do come forward. I think a lot of us see ageism in the workplace, um, but we find it less offensive because of that general narrative that we have as a culture than we would sexism or racism. Um, And it's less discussed, which is why this show here is so important, um, because I think that the more we discuss it, the more we can become deliberate and conscious and how we um, em- embrace age in the workplace. And we've also been talking about different narratives to change, you know, uh, habit change maybe in terms of thought processes. And and of course, with with the pandemic, it's shifted a lot of how we view the workplace. The workplace. So, Calder, do you think employers should also be addressing the demands around long work hours and needing more flexibility? Because I think being able to have a, uh, a hybrid work schedule has certainly been a huge change in catalyst for most workers. Yeah, I, I I think that in general, COVID and the pandemic has allowed a lot of us to realize that our work can be uh, conducted remotely and doesn't have to necessarily be in an office. So being open to allowing people flexible work environments is absolutely going to um, benefit the diversity when it comes to age in, in your workforce. And then also just uh you know, providing accommodations when people ask for it. And the law kind of mandates that accommodations be provided. Um, so I, I think those are some of the things that that we can do. So we were also talking about age diversity earlier. So can you talk about some of the benefits of age diversity in the workforce? Yeah, I think it, it adds a lot of diversity in perspective and institutional knowledge as well. Um, an employee that's been with an organization for 10 years, or even if it's not your organization, a competitor, they were with a competitor for 10 years, they bring a ton of institutional knowledge that it's just impossible for the younger workforce to have. Um, And that adds a lot of efficiencies to workflows and it adds a lot of value um, insofar as those varying perspectives. We know that creativity uh, flourishes with a diverse input and, and diverse um, um, perspective. So I, I think that 
including those individuals um, through those types of, of workflows or, or creative processes has tremendous benefits to the work product and, and quality of the outcomes. Well, before my next question for Nora, I want to take a quick call from Laurencia, who is in East Hampton. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, it's really important to me to have this, this seminal discussion. I graduated UConn in my 60s, going full-time to finish up a degree I started at 16 in creative writing and journalism. Um, I'm still very close to the kids that I went to school with. I was on campus, and I learned a lot more than them, from them than they did from me, and, and vice versa. Um, it, was a, it was an equal equation. The thing I will say that's super important, I think being an artist and a writer, that vernacular that we carry transcends age. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a common ground. I see this all the time. I don't do very well with people my own age that are not creatives because there is a, there are barriers. But in terms of ageism, I have never experienced ageism. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, I speak to everybody. I'm a journalist. I'm a staff writer for Inc. Publications here in Connecticut since 2015. I interview people from 20s to 90s. So if I can't speak to everybody, I've got a big problem. Well, thank you so much, Lorencia, for uh, sharing that story with us. And I love this idea that it trans- that, that, that art and, and creativity that transcends ageism. And, and Nora, you just heard from her. Any thoughts on what she has to say? Yeah, you know... <laughs> It's interesting because we are volunteers and uh, which, you know, is a really great way, by the way, to stay active and relevant after um, you retire instead of that 47 to 49 hours of TV a week that Jeff mentioned. Uh, but, you know, we, we go into classrooms with a program that we created here in Connecticut and that has now gone nationally called Disrupt Aging Classroom. And I think that um, one of the things that comes out of it is this sort of mutual respect for generations and the importance of generational diversity. And I think Lorencia touched on it really nicely that, you know, it, it this does flow both ways, mm-hmm. right? We need to be respectful um, of all generations. That's part of the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect of including age in your diversity, equity, and inclusion plans in a workplace. And, it, and it's the same is true for life. You know, you, you mentioned that okay, boomer. And then, you know, there's how many times do you hear digs on, you know, millennials or Gen Z or they ignore Gen X? I mean, there's all sorts of stereotypes, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're made by us. They're not real. (laughs) You know, they're, they're, um, I love to be able to go talk to my college age stepchildren in a, in a a way that makes sense for all of us. And I want to be able to talk to, um, you know, someone in their 90s the same way. So I, it really resonates, but I think it's important to remember that 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 it is a mutual respect across generations. Right, absolutely. And I want to echo Lorencia, like this is why I love this job is because I get to talk to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And we only have one uh, time for one more question um, for Calter. How can workplaces include more opportunities for networking amongst different generations? You know, we're here talking about building intergenerational relationships. You know, what can they what can they do to make this process perhaps maybe a little easier or maybe a little smoother? Yeah, I think that there's lots of things that you can do in the workplace. There's professional skills based types of training that you can offer individuals. 
um, you know, doing team building types of activities that you intentionally create groups that have a mixed age. I do that a lot in my classroom. I, I'll ask uh, groups to work together that I intentionally create, like one of the older students I'm going to put into the group with the younger students. And and like what's been said, there's a lot of give and take. It's the most rich learning environment that we have, especially when we talk about these types of issues, because perspectives come up that the other didn't even consider or, you know, you may say things that are offensive and you may not necessarily even realize it was offensive to somebody. So I think when you do those types of team building activities, group work and integrate people, um, these types of, of conversations happen organically and, and people learn to become more tolerant of one another and appreciate their commonalities and, and value um, what's being brought to the table. So I, I think forcing people to engage and, and collaborate is a fantastic way. And again, it really starts to become interwoven in the culture of the institution. You've been listening to Nora Duncan, who's the state director of the AARP Connecticut, and Calder Batter, who's an associate professor at Southern Connecticut State University. I want to thank both of you for being on the show today for such a rich conversation and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate and- it. Thank you. And Jeff Hamoy, co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy, will be staying with us. And coming up next, we talk about a local organization working to match senior job seekers with businesses in the local community. Is age just a number? We want to hear from you. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Retirement doesn't always mean the end of professional life. Many retirees will seek part-time work to stay active and stay social. Joining us now to talk about a local nonprofit helping job seekers who are over 50 find jobs in the community is Robin Clare. She's the executive director of the Seniors Job Bank in West Hartford. Thank you so much, Robin, for joining us this morning. Yes, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Robin, can you talk about the seniors that you work with? Yes, we can. So our seniors are 50 years old and older, and they're looking for part-time work or temporary work. And we help place them in businesses, local businesses in the greater Hartford area, as well as we do a lot of work with homeowners that are looking for handy persons and gardeners and and home health aides. And we also work with municipalities that are looking for um, English as a second language teacher, crossing guards, whatever they're looking for as well. And we've been talking a lot about age discrimination and bias throughout the hour and a little bit about the hiring process, too. Can you talk about the challenges of finding work during retirement or when you're older? Well, we sort of view ourselves as anti-ageism because we are specifically targeting um, individual older workers that are looking for, as I said, these part-time positions and our employers 
are specifically looking for those folks as well, because they're looking for folks that are committed, that are experienced and have a desire to serve. So we basically don't see ageism here because our targeted audience on both our job seekers and our employers is truly a match. And we've also been talking about changing narratives throughout the hour. What are some important factors when it comes to these jobs? You know, do you think having limited ability or mobility prevents people from seeking work? Well, what we find, which is very interesting, is that a lot of the positions that we have, folks are retired and some have lost their positions, but a lot of people are using their time in the seniors job bank to actually work their hobbies. So we could have someone, a handy person who has been incredibly handy their entire life. And then they say, well, maybe I can get paid for that. And and that's what they do. And then we have folks, um, we have one of our board members, um, Dell, who was in finance um, his entire career. And he took a position here to help another organization with their finances on a part-time job. So what we're finding is that our job seekers are also using this as a way to keep their brain working well and their body working well and to stay healthy and vibrant in into their older years. We're going to take a quick call from David, who is in Glastonbury. David, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Thank you. Um, I was actually calling during the last segment, but um, I think it's still relevant. Go for it. I stumbled upon the show this morning, and uh, it hit home because I am a software engineer. who just turned 55 uh, a few days ago. And I've been unemployed for over six months now yeah. and been unable to find work, having been fully employed my entire career. And I guess I, this is just sort of me wanting to see if there are resources for people like me um, to help me get a job. Um, I mean, I directly in interviews have, have had ageism. I had one guy corner me into telling him when I got my college degree, which pretty much dates me within two years. And I never heard from them again. Um, well, thank you so much, David, for sharing your story and best of luck to you. Uh, Nora, we still have Nora from the AARP Connecticut. Um, can you answer David's questions? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I wish I didn't hear that as much as I do. Um, so, David, I, I would direct you to aarp.org forward slash work. We do have a lot of resources for employers and employees, a job board. We have employers from around the country, including with a number of telecommute positions who actually post on our job board, who have signed pledges saying we want to hire age 50 and up because we are um, the, you know, value the experience. Uh, we've got some some free webinars, we've got resume updaters that can do a resume review for you for free up front, um, and as well as probably something you don't need, but there are some free skill development classes for technology, for basic Microsoft, et cetera. So, you know, in addition, please make sure you're reaching out to folks like um, the, you know, folks like Robin and her folks at the Senior Job Bank and, and to the state because the American job centers really do have a lot of help for people, but it is unfortunate. And 
you know, age discrimination is real. He just made it clear in his experience. We've got about a minute left, but I would love to ask Robin real quickly, you know, is there anything else that you would love our listeners to know about the job bank or just based on this conversation, anything that jumped out to you? Yes, I would like to say that it really also is about mindset. And it's about knowing and really feeling and thinking and believing that you are a vibrant person still able to work and contribute to the marketplace and holding that vision for yourself, doing what you love, and also perhaps being maybe a little flexible about what is that. I mean, we've we've lived a good amount of time and we have lots of things that we'd love to do besides what we were trained to do. When I first came out of corporate, I realized that I had 12 years of event production experience, but I never had a title doing that. And that's what I came out to do when I first came out of corporate was to do event production. So I encourage everybody to take a look at what it is that they want to do and what it is that they're good at, and then call us at the Seniors Job Bank or come on in and we will talk to you about how to be flexible with what you want to do and to see if we can help you to find a position. You've been listening. Can, can I just add one more piece of it? 20 seconds. Go for it. Oh, oh thanks so much. I, I think micro credentials and skills based types of credentials, certificates, micro certificates are a fantastic way to showcase your relevance as well. I think that that's part of the erroneous narrative. Um, and those are a tremendous way to showcase that you're still relevant. Thank you. A beautiful 20 seconds. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Robin Clare, who's the executive director of the Seniors Job Bank in West Hartford, and Nora Duncan, who's the state director of the AARP Connecticut, as well as Jeff Hamowy, who's the co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy. Thank you all for joining us this morning on Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.